Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life, in your light we see light. There are times in our lives in the midst of difficulties when human counsel, the sympathy of a friend, or our religious practices fail to comfort or help us. We have all experienced this. The question is, why does our gracious God allow such a thing to happen? Perhaps it is because we often live too much of our daily lives away from Him. And He therefore takes away the things we become dependent on for comfort and security. He does this in order to drive us back to Himself. He is the fountain of life. It is a blessed thing to live at the fountain head. While our bottles are full, we are content like Hagar and Ishmael to go into their wilderness away from the fountain. But when they are dry... Nothing will help us but the God who sees. Or we are like the prodigal son, straying away from the Heavenly Father, and and all the while making swine troughs even out of our religious practices. They are blessed things, our religious practices, but when we place them above God, when they become the end, and not the means to the end of glorifying God, then they are of no value. When our hearts are far from the fountain of life, then our religious customs are but empty rituals, void of life. Too often we base our standing with God on having the right worship or the right doctrine, on whether or not we've had a quiet time for 30 minutes, or got through the day without snapping at our children. The end result of such thinking is self-righteousness or self-deprecation. Both are destructive of life. Too often we base our comfort and happiness on whether things are going our way or not on how much money we have saved in the bank, on the number of compliments we've received from our spouse, on how clean the house is, or on how well our kids are doing in school. This reasoning leads to false security and a joy that is fleeting. We must, like the prodigal son, come to our senses and return to the Father. If we find ourselves in the midst of spiritual famine, it may be the Lord driving us back to himself, reminding us that he alone is a source of life, faith, comfort, and security. Nothing and no one else will truly satisfy. Not our spouse, not our children, not our friends, not our theology. And the Lord will not share the highest place in our lives with these things. Jesus said to the woman at the well, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. If we find ourselves in a thirsting condition, let us drink again from the fountain of life, which is Christ Jesus. Let our joy, our comfort, and our security be founded upon the complete atonement and perfect righteousness that he imparts to us, resting fully on his merit and not our own. God's word reminds us of our need to confess our sins. If you are willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins to God.
you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be considering verses 22 and 23, among others. And I don't intend to exegete this particular passage in all of its depth, but to use it as a jumping off point for what I want to say. Um, these days it's actually considered to be cool and hip to be cynical, to be skeptical. It's always the, the malady that afflicts early 20-somethings, I think. Question everything. Don't trust anybody over 30. Yeah, I kind of remember that from when I was a kid. And, you know, this being applied to concepts such as truth, you know, absolute, objective, verifiable truth. God himself, uh, in Christian circles even, emergent Christianity, postmodernism, uh, causing people to, uh, to question the word of God, question the veracity, the truth claims of Christ, or even your own interpretation. I mean, how many times have we heard, well, that's just your interpretation. Oh, really? I, did you want me to give you your interpretation? Because I don't, I don't understand. Of course it's mine. What, what does that do? Well, it just causes, you know, raises questions about your ability to understand God and his word. And that may work in some academic situations and, you know, theology classes where you're rubbing shoulders with people and, you know, iron sharpening iron. But consider those kind of attitudes when someone is at death's door or in dire circumstances. Is that really the message of the gospel? Is that really what God intends to tell his people or even those who are outside the faith? Uh, as a means by which the gospel is presented and they're brought to saving faith. Uh, in Hebrews 10, we read at the, uh, at the end of this long extended argument in the book of Hebrews. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Recently, we uh, at Trinity had a very dear friend of ours uh, lose a battle with cancer. Man's relatively young, 60 years old, didn't smoke. That's always the ironic part, you know. Get these old. Scots-Irish guys in Virginia that smoke and drink every day of their life and they're 92, you know. Uh, and this, this was a godly man, a man of great character, had mentored many young men at his job at uh, Indiana Wesley and he was the groundskeeper there, head groundskeeper. And uh, it, was, it was just sad. Uh, me and the, the two other pastors and two of our wives drove down to Marion and ministered to the family, uh, he was still relatively good health at this point. Three weeks later, he was gone. And one of the, one of the things that we, we wanted to make sure and do is, is assure Rob, that's, that's the man's name, um, of who he was in Christ and to give comfort in this area because you know, it was obvious to everyone, unless God intervenes directly here, there's probably nothing that's going to change the trajectory of the disease. And so it was, it was a Monday afternoon, I was out cutting firewood, listening to John Piper with my shooting headphones on, you know, run, run the chainsaw, you can do a really multitask here. So if I show up one Sunday and I'm 
missing a limb, you'll know. He just wasn't thinking straight. But John Piper was preaching on, on uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And kind of as a parenthetic, he said, Oh, and this morning I was so blessed when the elders prayed for these sick people in our church that they would die well. Die well. And all of a sudden I was just reminded again of my dear friend. And I began weeping and, you know, running a chainsaw, trying to keep the tears. I said, forget it, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to call them, see, hey, I can come down, you know. It happened to be the day of our pro-life banquet. Big deal in Kosciuszko County, big uh, right to life group. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to give my tickets to somebody. We didn't buy enough. You know, once you've been arrested in front of an abortion clinic, a pro-life banquet, just not quite the same buzz, you know. <laughs> I, I'm kidding. But so I, I called to their house and one of the daughters picked up and I said, Emily, I would, I'm dropping everything. I could drive down. And she said, you know, I don't think we're going to receive any visitors. And I just, I knew, yeah, they're, they're preparing for him to die. And so what I shared on the phone was what I would have shared if I had come, come down. I literally said, I'll bring my guitar. We'll sing a couple psalms. I'll get out of your hair, you know. And I wanted to, what I wanted to do is hold Rob's hand and tell him, listen, you are Christ's. You, you know the certainty of the fact that your sins are forgiven and you've been united to him by faith. And Christ said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know, all this stuff was rattling around in my brain. And it reminded me again of a, of a conversation I had with another pastor where death was really quick for one of their parishioners. And they weren't prepared. They weren't forewarned as to be forearmed. And, you know, beloved, we need to be prepared for what's inevitably going to await us at some point. And evangelicals in general don't talk much about death because it's not pleasant. But if you look in your Cantus Christi, there are hymns with this kind of, us talking to Bonnie about Appalachian feel to them. There's a little plaintive blues. And they speak of that, you know, when I'm, when I'm on my, you know, when I've gone to glory and speaking in terms of, yeah, this is, this is going to happen. We're not used to it as much. Although I know some of you have had some pretty, pretty close calls with uh, children and whatnot. So I wanted to bring this message this morning about full assurance in life and in death based on three things. First of all, the character of God. Secondly, Christ's perfect work. And thirdly, the certainty of the resurrection. So first of all, based in the character of God, God is holy, He is perfect, there is no shadow of turning with Him. There are things God cannot do, such as lie. He cannot go against His own character. It's okay for for Reformed people to say, yeah, I grant that God doesn't do those things outside of His character. Now people make a lot of hay over, well, can He or not, or is it the the fact that he chooses not to. No, we don't, we don't get into this area of ridiculous speculation. God is perfect. And I like how you guys are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one. Remember? What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Well, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from the power of the devil and so preserves me with 
so that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. So when we talk about assurance, there's kind of two different parallel tracks that we we usually speak of. One would be assurance of one's own faith, one's position with Christ. But then behind that is the question of assurance of all the doctrines that we inculcate and internalize and believe and proclaim. And assurance of faith is really simply put the believer's conviction that by God's grace, he belongs to Jesus, he's received full pardon for sins, and will inherit eternal life. And basing our thinking on the trustworthy word of God, we can know assuredly without any doubt that God has indeed made this man whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. This is, this is the theme repeated over and over, especially in the New Testament, about being certain, being sure of the things that have been passed on and are now being inscripturated. So in other words, from we, we look at our passage today, we draw near to God with a sincere heart. That's really dealing with, with having your sins forgiven, right? Because you can't draw near to God with an insincere heart. Sin always puts a barrier between you and God, and that's why we confess regularly in, in churches like ours. Let's, get, let's do business with God. Do it quickly. And, and be real with the Lord. You know, fully confess, receive forgiveness. That's the gospel. And it goes on in, in Hebrews 10 as well. Uh, in full assurance of faith. I believe they're speaking there of the content of the faith. Who are you putting your faith in? And then he who promised is faithful. That points us always back to God. So really... Any assurance that anyone has in life or in death is all based in the character of God at the very foundational level. You know, Abraham asked rhetorically, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Amen. Yes, of course. Do we know that for sure? Well, God puts quite a high priority on this very question. So let's talk a little bit about that that first track of assurance of the things that were recorded in Scripture, of the Bible itself. You realize that in the day in which we live, most of the attacks on Christianity and indeed on ethics and true knowledge and all of that come at the level of the Bible itself. About It's at the Scripture. So, in other words, the idea would be, well, how can you have full assurance about anything when the very book that you've taken your stand upon is questionable? I think it's one of the reasons that right now uh, the megachurch pastor Andy Stanley is trying to lower the bar or, you know, make the target smaller by saying, don't say Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Because what if you have issues with six-day creation and the universal flood and all these kind of things? Why not just say, Jesus loves me, this I know because he rose from the dead? Something's, something's not quite right with that. Why are you skipping over the very issue that seems to be the stumbling block for most people today is the truthfulness of the scripture itself. And by the way, how do you know about that resurrection? 
Are you just going to cherry pick and say, oh, I believe the resurrection? I know the Bible says that, but, but really we need to grant that first. And then all of the rest, maybe, it's an option. I heard one apologist say, oh, that's no problem. You don't believe in six-day creation. You can be a non-inerrantist Christian. <laughs> well, thanks for throwing us all under the bus, you know? That doesn't work. So first of all, we think about the Bible itself. You know, Luke wrote to his friend Theophilus, which that's kind of a cool name, God lover. Dear God lover, I've written these, these things to, so that you can know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Certainty. Not wavering in unbelief, but to know the certainty of this Jesus Christ. In Titus chapter 1. Paul's apostleship, he says, is for the faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. So there again, the apostle pointing us to the character of God. God does not lie. He made these promises. And so you're resting upon the promises of God. These are undeniable and they're inviolable. You can't break them. God's not going to break his word. That's the one we trust in. So really, though, the, you know, thinking in those terms, that's kind of more in an apologetic realm. Be, be sure these aren't just you know, my speculations. But someone who really is on their deathbed, this is about his assurance with his relationship with God based on the promises of God. So the gospel doesn't come only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full assurance and conviction. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, it says, full assurance, power, Holy Spirit. And again, when we say assurance, we're talking about this, this faith that's not marred in any way by skepticism and doubt, but full conviction. Abraham is called the father of the faithful for good reason. Because he is the father of all those who believe. And Paul says he was not weak in his faith, but had full certainty with respect to God's word. Find that in Romans 4, 19, and, and so forth. And again, our passage from today. The author of Hebrews tells us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and to hold fast to the confession of our hope unyieldingly in Christ. All of this language is, is meant to drive us to have hope that's not based in just, you know, I hope, and you read the verse and you stand on your tippy toes and get a lump in your throat because it means so much to me, but it's objective and testable and true and, and absolute. It's interesting, when, when people talk about assurance of faith, remember John's first epistle, the book of 1 John, towards the end he says, I write you these things that you may know you have eternal life. Okay, that's at the that's at the end of the book. What's at the beginning of the book? Well, it's all those things that he writes so that we may know we have eternal life. What are some of those things? Regular confession of sin, love for the saints, uh, love for God's people, uh, love for your neighbor, not holding on to sin. All these things that he writes us to say, if, if these are true of you, then you can know you have eternal life. You're, you're not in some kind of deceptive case where... You said the prayer, raised your hand, shook the pastor's hand, signed the card, and okay, it's all done, right? I've run into more people, you know, inebriated, saying, oh yeah, I did that. 
Okay, it's not what, that's not what John's talking about there. So it's very clear that when the Bible speaks of full assurance, it's not talking about greater probabilities. It's talking about being so convicted in your heart that you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you're one of Christ's sheep and he is your great shepherd. We even think of Jesus himself when he was tempted to think differently about himself and about his father and the goodness of God and all those things. Where did he go? Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. He always went back to the word of God. And the the reason that I stress this based on God's character and his promises this is a doctrinal issue and it's a life issue remember Paul tells Timothy to watch your life and your doctrine carefully 22 years ago my dad had cancer it was bad liver cancer literally a day before he died a letter came in the mail anonymously and he opened it up read it And this anonymous saint said, Dear brother, if we can find the area of sin or ignorance in your life, then our prayers can begin to be effectual. Okay. I can barely talk about that. But what what were they saying? Well, the cancer is your fault. You haven't availed yourself of this knowledge of God's promise to heal Right? So if you could just, and there's got to be unconfessed sin. Sounds like three of Job's friends. It has to be something, right? And I can't imagine anything more cruel to do to a guy than to write in this letter and not have the courage of your convictions to put your name on it. So he was a little shook up. He said, Dad, listen, nowhere in the Bible is it guaranteed that physical healing is all part of the atonement. Ultimately, it is. You're going to be raised to life someday. That's our third point, resurrection. But in the meantime, think about what what theology, what doctrine is behind that letter. They're rooting it all firmly in the creature, in us, rather than on God, who's the one who promised and who says he's faithful. Francis Schaeffer went through the same thing. Dear Satanist Church, somebody said, if we could just find the area of sin or ignorance, then the leukemia will leave this dear, sainted woman. What horrible thing to say to someone. But the Bible points us not to ourselves, but to the promises of God. As we heard in Hebrews 6, we have this hope, not as just an idea, but as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So the hope there being that God cannot change, cannot lie, swore by himself, so that our trust would be in the Lord. So first of all, full assurance in in this life, in life and in death, rooted firmly in the character of God, we can utterly trust him. Second of all, we speak of full assurance of faith in life and death in the finished work of Christ. Or in Christ's perfect work. So when we think of Christ's perfect work, both his obedience to his heavenly father and his obedience going to the cross. Now we know it would be unjust for God to 
acquit the guilty. God is not like the judges that he has given us in America now. He does not send innocent people to jail, nor does he acquit the guilty. But God's law is inviolable. It's literally impossible to break God's law without having some effect on the lawbreaker. All transgressions will be punished. So, again, making some reference here back to the Heidelberg Catechism. If someone's in a situation where they don't know where their next breath is coming from, um, how are you righteous with God? Have you been reconciled to God? Well, I quit drinking a couple years ago. No. I stopped beating my wife. No. What does it say? Question 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How are you righteous before God? Well, the first part is kind of like the bad news. So this question 60 is a microcosm of the gospel, beginning with the law. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, that is, although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all the commandments of God, and I've never kept any of them, and I'm still prone to all evil. Wow, (laughs) that's not good news. But it continues. Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never committed nor had any sins and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. If only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. Well, there it is. Centered on the work of Christ himself, the imputed righteousness of Jesus that was purchased for us, for all of his people at the cross. The work of Christ as God sent his beloved son to do that which... Do you remember when, when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem in the book of John? He says, this is, for this very purpose was I sent. This was, this was it. If you want to really boil it down, we know there's many reasons people give why Jesus took on human flesh and went to the cross. But Jesus says the main reason was I had to do this work at the cross that turns the Father's wrath away for all of my people. I will save my people from, my sin, from their sins. You find the microcosm again in Romans chapter 3. But the result of all of this, when we think about the perfect, completed it's not just, I've, I've died so that an amorphous group of people who may or may not believe can be a part of this. No, when, when Christ was on the cross, he had your name and your name and my name cognizant in some way. I'm not saying it was literally. But he was dying to secure salvation, not just make it possible for his people, for a particular group of people. That's why we can talk about substitutionary atonement. If he really propitiated the wrath substitutionarily for me, as Paul said, he he died for me. It's okay to think in personal terms here. Churches are made up of persons, you know. That Christ died and substituted for me 2,000 years ago. And I was united to him at the cross 2,000 years ago, although it had to work out in time. And the result of all this is hope. You know, we heard earlier from, um, I I believe one of the pastoral prayers, quoting from Ephesians chapter 2, that there was a time when each one of us was alienated from God and without hope in the world. 
Now, I mean, I'm, I'm almost 56. I've been a Christian a long time. I can't fathom living in a situation where there's no hope. I mean, many, many have undertaken to write why, why people continue in like horrible poverty and don't get out. Well, they don't, there's no hope. They, they don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. There's nothing to rest upon. In fact, it's the opposite. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Right? Dante's gates of hell sign. As my old pastor said, yeah, that's, that's all of us in the B.C. days. But I love how Ephesians 2 continues. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. There it is again. The finished work of Christ perfected all of those for whom it was made, for those who draw near in faith. The great Scottish preacher Ebenezer Erskine who lived uh, about 1680 to 1754, he once visited a woman on her deathbed. And as Scottish preachers would do, they would lovingly test her readiness for heaven. And when she assured him that she was ready to depart, to be with Jesus, because she was in that hand from which no one could pluck her, Ebenezer Erskine asked her, But are you not afraid that you will slip through his fingers in the end? And she replied, that is impossible because of what you've always told us. He goes, what have I always told you? And she answered, that we're united to him and we're part of his body. I cannot slip through his fingers because I am one of his fingers. Besides, Christ has paid too high a price for my redemption to leave me in Satan's hands. If I were to be lost, he would lose more than just myself. I would lose my salvation, but he would lose some of his glory because one of his sheep would be lost. Spurgeon said, if God lights the candle, none can blow it out. I think that dear saint is absolutely right. Not only is the perfect work of Christ something that we can utterly rely on, but we also think in terms of the glory of Christ in keeping all of his dear ones. There's always these debates about perseverance and how that works and justification, and I think the Bible's pretty clear. It's all based on God's promises. It's all based on Christ's keeping of his sheep. Romans 8, 28 and 30. Christ's glory is bound up in the preservation of of his elect people. Who can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ? It's a rhetorical question to which the answer is no one. There's no power in heaven on earth that can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Now, you may be thinking, okay, we're talking about assurance, um, someone on their deathbed, I understand what about, what about the, the very real possibility of, of presumption on God's grace? I mean, it's, it's there, right? I mean, everybody thinks about it. Um, yeah, there's such a thing as false faith. James talks a lot about false faith. It's the kind that has nothing accompanying it. Remember, though, James 2 is for our benefit. How many times does he say, you see, you see, you see that a man is justified like this? That's not for God's benefit, that's for us. 
It's the evidence of true faith. Yeah, and, and really, presumption, all the calisthenics and athletics that are required to slip around God's commandments. Yeah, people will do that. Heart is deceitful and wicked. But I believe those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, those who have been captivated by Christ's goodness and the sovereignty of the Lord and, and all of the majesty and wonder of the Word of God. Listen, we're going to crave a real Word of God, not some bland, modern, feel-good, there-there message. You want to hear what God has spoken. God's guarantee is full assurance, confidence, certainty. He's truly set His seal of ownership on us and put His Spirit upon us And we can trust in this because God's character is perfect and Christ's work is perfect. There's nothing lacking in Christ's work at all. So finally we come to point number three. Certainty in the resurrection. Acts 17 where Paul is speaking before the the Areopagus, all the learned, learned philosophers. And remember, Paul got the gig by saying crazy stuff. He didn't, he wasn't fitting in with their philosophical constructs, and they say, you know, we would hear you more. Why? You're saying exactly what? No. He was talking about the resurrection of the dead. They, this guy must be crazy. Let's give him his chance. And he preaches that wonderful sermon, Men of Athens, I see you're very religious, and you're ignorant. You know, there's a church growth strategy right there. And you worship in ignorance. And Paul ends this with, he has set a day, speaking of God, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. So the resurrection of Christ indeed is the reliable certainty evidence that God has given us that all these things are true, and that Christ is the king, and God will indeed judge the world and judge all men in this fashion according to the relationship to his precious son. The certainty of the resurrection of Christ is magnified over and over in the New Testament, especially in 1 Corinthians 15, um, in Paul's defense before King Agrippa. This is what, he, what his appeal is to. He doesn't, remember, Paul doesn't try to prove that God exists or to prove that the resurrection happened. He stands upon the existence of God and the reality of the resurrection to make his gospel presentation. It's it's the opposite of most modern apologetics ministries. Trying to prove, you know, the cosmological, teleological, all these logical, which I, I love logic, it's thinking God's thoughts after him. But Paul never does that. And none of the apostles ever said, God just loved you so much. He did some, won't you pay him back and Make him your Lord. They never say that stuff. It's always repent and believe. But what Paul says to King Agrippa is interesting. He goes, it's because of my hope in what God has promised. Again, that's our first point. That he's promised our fathers that I'm on trial today. Oh, King, it's because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And there he's encapsulating all of this. The character of God, the promises made in the word, the certainty of that, and in the resurrection of Christ. Why would you consider it crazy that God would raise the dead? This is the God who calls things that are not as though they are. Spoke the world into existence 
And now you think he can't raise someone from the dead? Really? So our certainty, as we leave this place this morning, our certainty of our hope in Christ, and again, if you're ministering to those who are in hospital, talk to hospital chaplains that, man, without this kind of sure anchor for the soul, they really don't have anything to say to anyone on their deathbed. It's been my, if you want to call it a privilege, to minister to a few people that were really close. I've lost many in my own family. My best friends have all been taken by cancer. What do you say to people? You know, you can't, get, you can't lie to them. And hopefully, all of us are prepared. I mean, when you're younger, you don't think about it. When you get a little older, you're like, yeah, it's... Yeah, 20 years is nothing. <laughs> Where'd that go? Yeah, when you're that age, 20 years is an eternity. It's all out there, right? There's an old song that is a little hokey, and if, uh, if the Gaithers wrote it, you can forgive me for quoting it, but because he lives, I can... Uh, there we go. I can face tomorrow. But let's not stop there. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow, and I can face... The past, which, by the way, has been forgiven because of Christ. I can face the present without anxiety. I can face pagans who, we all know they don't have any leg to stand on. They're just suppressing the truth of God. And I can face everything else that wars against my soul because Jesus lives. He's not an impotent God. He is alive. He's the God of the living. In fact, Romans 8 says, In all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love how Paul personalizes his gospel. It's not, it's not just because God loved in general. Because he loved you and you and you and me and, and all of God's people this morning. So since Christ's work is completed and finished, nothing more to be added And Christ's perfect work perfects for all time those who draw near in faith. And since Christ is risen from the dead and we can trust God with everything, we can grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We can grieve with certainty and with confidence and even with joy, knowing that our Father has promised all these good things. One more passage and I'll close this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and 14. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. That's a a euphemism for death for the children. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So we can have full assurance as as the word of God so clearly demonstrates and teaches us, as the, as the good old Heidelberg Catechism says, what is your only hope in life and in death? Was that I belong to Jesus. I'm one of his. He bought me. He paid for me. He owns me. He redeemed me from the slave auction block of sin and self and idolatry and all the mess 
that leads to death. As our country heads headlong into its rebellion, you know, those who hate wisdom love death. But not us. We're the people of God. We love life because Christ has paid for us, because we trust in God, and he doesn't lie. So we can have full assurance, not only in the character of God and Christ's perfect work, but also the certainty of the resurrection. Know the certainty of these things, dear ones. Rest in his finished work. And as, as the catechism even says later, now, now I am all the more willing and ready to obey Jesus with every ounce of my being because he loves me and gave himself for me. All right, let's pray. Our gracious Father, indeed, we are, we are thrilled and humbled and privileged that you would stoop down, as it were, and condescendingly reach and snatch us out of our own rebellion. We thank you for the life that you've given us in Christ. We thank you that we can trust you. We thank you you're not like anything else in all of your creation. You are transcendent and yet imminent and with us. God with us, Emmanuel. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his obedience to your law and to the cross. And thank you for the resurrection that we can know that we have eternal life now. We can know that we've been justified by faith and we have peace with you. Lord, let us never lose sight of what a great and precious gift that is to have peace with you. Now bless the rest of our lives, Lord. Help us to live commensurate with with your word, to live knowing that these things are true and that there are so many people out there who still are your people and need to hear the gospel and need to see it lived out and to be loved on and captivated by your love. Now, Father, please teach us to pray just as you saw your disciples. Speaking of the resurrection of Christ, in the last chapter of John, we read one of the accounts of Jesus appearing to his disciples after he rose from the dead. It is a time when he causes them to have a miraculous catch of fish, and they return to shore to find Jesus and a meal of bread and fish prepared for them. Jesus says to them, come and dine. That same invitation, come and dine, is given to us today. It is offered here at this table, where we are provided a marvelous vision of our union with Christ. That day the disciples ate bread and fish. Today, however, we partake of Jesus himself. The bread is his body, the wine is his blood. And Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. This is an incredible union. The depth of that union our human reason cannot fathom. Yet, as real as Jesus was sitting before his disciples that morning, as real as this bread and wine are on this table, so real is that union that we all have with Jesus. Come and dine is also an invitation for us to enjoy the fellowship that we have with all the saints. We as Christians may differ on a variety of points, but we all have one spiritual appetite. And though we may not all think or feel the same, we can all feed alike on the bread of life sent down from heaven. At this table of communion, we partake of one bread and one cup, and we are all one in Christ.
The invitation to come and dine is an invitation to a holy nearness to Jesus and to one another. A nearness that we may not yet fully comprehend, but we can taste it, smell, and touch that nearness. It is a nearness, a oneness that was accomplished by the death and resurrection of Christ, our blessed Savior. So dear brothers and sisters, come and dine with Jesus this morning. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.